Welcome to the most recent message on our Words for Life podcast, which highlights the preaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. This week's sermon is the last message in our four-week series titled Stronger, and today's launching point will be Jesus' prayer for unity among believers. Join Pastor Brad Cunningham as we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4 for a message titled Everyone Battling Disunity. There's a phrase that we use in our culture, and the phrase is, dying men don't mince words. As you can imagine, as a pastor, I've been in the room on more than one occasion when people are at the very end of their life, and in those moments, uh, people don't chat about the weather, they don't talk about uh, how I think the Reds are going to do, they want to talk about things that are important, they want to say things to other people that are important, because in those moments, we do not mince words. And so under that thought, let me ask you a question that maybe you've never thought of before. If you knew that the end of your life was drawing near, and you had just enough breath to utter out one final prayer to God, what is it that you would pray about? If you knew, like, this, this is the last prayer, one of the final prayers I may ever utter, what, what is it that you would pray about? What are the things you'd pray about? Who would you pray for? What would be in your final prayer? Well, he, here's what's fascinating. In John chapter 17, which is not our base text, so just hold on, Jesus is offering up a prayer that many scholars have described as his high priestly prayer, but the other descriptor of that prayer is known as Jesus' farewell prayer. And in Jesus' farewell prayer, listen to what he prays for in John 17. I do not ask for these only, meaning his current disciples at the time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so those who are saved all the way up until today. And here's what he's praying for. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Here's what's fascinating to me in looking at Jesus' farewell prayer. One of the prominent things that Jesus prays for in his farewell prayer is that unity among believers, there would be a oneness among those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so that's fascinating to think that in Jesus' one of his final prayers, uh, Jesus prays for unity among believers in the body of Christ. But here's what's even more fascinating to me. Not once, but twice in that prayer, he says, Lord, this is what I want for unity among believers. But then he tells us the what's at stake here. He says, Lord, I want there to be unity so that they may believe that you have sent me. In other words, what he's saying is unity is so powerful that it lends credibility that I am the Messiah and salvation only comes through me. And he says it not once, but twice in that prayer. That's how powerful unity is in the body of Christ. It gives credibility to the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. So let me invite you to take your phones or your devices and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning for the final message in our series that we have titled Stronger. And the thesis of this whole series has been that our church becomes stronger corporately when we take steps of obedience individually. And so in week one, we talked about everyone pursuing the spirit-filled life. And 
Weeks two and three, we talked about everyone taking a next step. And so it's membership and baptism and uh, serving and giving and gathering faithfully. And, and this morning, I want to conclude this series by teaching on this reality. That our church will be stronger corporately when everyone is pursuing unity passionately. We plan our preaching in advance. It may not look like it or sound like it sometimes. But let me tell you why we want to wrap up this series with a message on a call to unity. It's because over the past months, even year, year and a half, two years, uh, things have been going so incredibly well at our campuses here at Liberty Heights Church. So I got in the room late this morning, and uh, my understanding is there was uh, uh, several people baptized at our Espanol campus, and then all of a sudden that number, bam, 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 there's more people getting baptized, people have come to faith in Christ. Let me just share you a little snippet in what that means. In the last nine months through our campuses, uh, in the last nine months alone, over 80 people profess Christ and been baptized in the last nine months. That's incredible. We're deeply grateful to see the Lord moving in our campuses. We want to be a steward uh, of that. Uh, But let me tell you also something we want to be guarded because here's something we've taught often, which is this. Seasons of blessing are more spiritually dangerous than seasons of adversity. Seasons of blessing when everything's going great and life is going well. Uh, We can let our guard down, not be aware that we're uh, still in a spiritual battle. We can forget when life is going well and we're being blessed, uh, just how dependent we still are on the Lord and seasons of adversity. I'm very aware of how dependent I am on the Lord. I'm going to him for refuge. I'm getting in the word more. I'm praying more. So seasons of blessing are more dangerous than seasons of uh, adversity. And so because things are going so well in our church, uh, we want to preach this preventatively and guard us against anything uh, damage that disunity might cause. Because here's the truth. If we're honest... All of us have stories of churches where the Lord was moving, they're having incredible seasons of harvest, God's pouring out his blessing on that church, and then a little disunity, someone threw a little gas on a spark of disunity, and the whole thing blew up, and the work of Christ and the witness of Christ was reduced to a pile of ashes through that church. That's even the history of this church. Years ago, Someone joked and said, hey, tell me about the church. And I said, we went through a period prior to my arrival where we we planted dozens of churches unintentionally as literally hundreds of people left the church because of disunity. And so when we think that, hey, things are going well, things could not go well, all of a sudden we're in a place where we let our guard down and disunity can creep in and burn the whole thing down. So we're preaching this preventively this morning. So uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me tell you something that's not probably surprising to you. So over the years, I've done uh, quite a bit of marriage counseling and specifically premarital counseling. And let me tell you something in all that premarital counseling that has never happened. Never once have I sat across in that couple and heard their deep love for each other and what they want their marriage to look like and all this thing. Never once has that couple ever said, hey, pastor, we've got this all figured out. Like we're going to start off on fire and we're gonna, this marriage is going to launch like gangbusters. And real soon after that, our goal is to flush the whole thing down the toilet. What do you think about that? 
right? Like no one's ever, ever said that, but yet statistically, uh, that happens uh, more often than not. It happens in marriages, it happens in friendships, it happens in our relationships with other believers in the body of Christ. So, so here's what I want you to be encouraged with uh, this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I are not powerless uh, against the dangers of uh, disunity, you're not left to your own willpower and I'll, I'll try to work hard to make this relationship work or I'll manage this or fix this or those kind of things. That, that here's the reality, that when Jesus saved us, he not only forgave our past and secured our home and heaven in the future, that he literally, if we allow him to, will transform the affections of my heart in the present. Now, let me tell you why that's important. If you're listening, say Amen. The reason that's important that Jesus can transform the affections of my heart is because the natural drift of my sinful heart is towards selfishness, which is a catalyst towards disunity. The, the natural drift of my heart is I want what I want. I don't know if you know this or not, uh, that I'm a big fan of me. and You're a big fan of you. And our sinful hearts want what we want to the point that if we're not careful, uh, we'll destroy anyone and anything in our path that will not indulge our sinful desires of our own heart. But the good news of the gospel is, with Jesus' help, that does not have to describe us. Not only are we free from sin's penalty in the past, we are free from sin's power in the present. You and I can live in a way that is contrary to where our own hearts naturally want to drift, which is towards selfishness and the disunity uh, that it causes you. So here's something else we've taught often, is that grace, while it is opposed to earning, grace is not opposed to effort. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, there are multiple things we should be striving for and lending effort towards uh, if we want unity to be the overflow or the outcome of that. And that's important to understand because what you're going to see in this passage is that unity is the overflow of pursuing these things. And he gives a list in verses 2 and 3. But before we look at that list, I want us to look briefly at an important truth in verse 1, which is simply this. Is that disunity dishonors Christ and damages his cause. Several years ago, I learned an important lesson about spiritual leadership. And I was in a conversation with a pastor in the bookstore at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, and we're talking. I'd heard some rumblings that you know, things weren't going well at his church. And so we're talking. And I just asked the innocent question, uh, hey, man, how are things going? Now, listen, be careful. Because if you don't really want to know, don't ask that question. Because he just, he just threw up, right? He said, oh, my goodness. He's like, have you heard? And I lied a little bit. I was like, no, I, you know, I just was wrong. I repented that. So, right? So, so he's like, let me just let me tell you what's going on. And so he just story after story of disunity. And then he went on to tell me, and, and I tried to do this to fix it. And we thought, hey, let's put together a communication plan. So we get up on the same page and, and we tried this, we tried this. And he said, but here's what I've learned. He said, you can't manage a spiritual problem. The answer is not better management. The answer for a spiritual problem is repentance. And I remember when he said that, I thought, who are you? Yoda? Like, where I just like, it was, and I've, I've hung on to that. And listen, I've watched this play out. He's 100% true. And so, uh, listen, the reality is this. Uh, you've got, uh, you don't need a better system for managing your teenager's behavior. Uh, they need to repent for disobeying their parents. 
Uh, You don't need better tools to manage your anger. Uh, You need to repent of the selfishness or lack of forgiveness that caused it to take root in your hearts. And so when it comes to unity in the body of Christ, we don't need a better system of communication so everybody's always on the same page, even though that's helpful. Uh, The starting point for dealing with disunity in the body of Christ, in our relationships, is not a better management plan. It is repentance. And the reason that the starting point is repentance is because the truth, he says, in verse 1 is this. Hey, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and your life is marked by disunity and you're causing disunity in the body of Christ, in your relationships, he's saying, here's what you need to understand. That is not fitting character of a person who's been called into a relationship with Jesus. You say, where's it at? Look at verse 1. What's he say? He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Now, now listen to this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so in verse 1, he's speaking, he said, hey, here's the foundation of our unity is that we've all been called by the same spirit into a relationship with the same Lord and Savior. And what he says, though, but but along with that gift of salvation, there comes some expectations. You you no longer get to do whatever you want to do. He says there's a way in which you should live. That's what walk means. It's a pattern of living. He says there's a way in which you should walk or conduct yourself that is uh, fitting for a follower of Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's a way that's not fitting for a follower of Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've had people reject Christ and the gospel uh, under some kind of idea like this. I don't want anyone telling me what I can uh, and cannot do. I want to be free. You know what the Bible says? That apart from relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm not free. Matter of fact, the language the Bible uses, the Bible says I'm a slave to sin. That I'm not free. And so when Christ comes into my life, I surrender my life to Christ, uh, there's a freedom, there's a power to break free from that slavery to sin. But it's not freedom to do whatever I want. It's freedom to obey Christ because before, the only thing I could obey was my own sinful urges. But now, through Christ in me, I'm free to obey the Lord, to walk in a way that is pleasing to those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so that's the starting point for that. And so, let me ask you a question. If I came up to you after church and I said, hey, pray for Sister Sally. Now, in a church, here's what we know. Sometimes prayer requests are baptized gossip. You know what I'm talking about, amen? Like, I don't want to share this with you, but I just want you to pray accordingly, right? So if I just walked to him and said, hey, I, I just want you to pray for Sister Sally. Through Sally in the room, I apologize, all right? Get your life right. All right, so, so if I just said, hey... Pray for Sister Sally. Uh, She's living her life in a way that's not worthy of someone who's uh, called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I just walked away and that's all I said. And you begin to wonder, my goodness, what is Sister Sally doing? What is she she involved in? And all of a sudden you start guessing, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. Let me ask you a question. Be honest this morning. Would, Would near the top of the list or anywhere on your list, would you think Sister Sally is involved in creating disunity? And my guess is, that probably wouldn't be in our top guesses. You know why? Because you know what we often do? We often take contentious people, divisive people, people who don't pursue unity, and we sweep it under the rug of their personality. That's just how they are. They've always been that way. They don't mean anything by it. 
That's just, they just overlook that. They just say things they shouldn't say. They, they just, that's just how they're, that's their personality. Listen, according to the word of God, we don't sweep it under the rug of personality. What we come to say, this is not fitting character of a person who's been called into salvation. And therefore, the answer for that is repentance. Is to come to the place and say, hey, I've been involved in creating disunity. And that is not fitting character for a person who's been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and we hear them, we think, I don't know that, I don't, I don't know if it's that big of a deal. We cannot disregard the Bible's counsel when it says this in the book of Romans. As much as it is possible with you, so it's not always possible, but as much as it's possible with you, uh, live at peace with all men. The Bible says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. I've met a lot of peace hopers, peace wishers. I've even met some peace fakers. You know what I'm talking about? Are we okay? We're totally fine. What that means is I'm going to stab you in the back, right? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. We can't disregard that. Psalm 133 says this, it is beautiful and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. You know what that means? The opposite, it is painful and ugly when we do not. Remember what Jesus prayed? In his farewell prayer, he said, Lord, I want them to all be one just as you and I are one, right? He says, I want them all to be one. And then he says, not once, but two times in his farewell prayer, he says, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. He says it again, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So here's what I understand. Here's the statement I want to make. The credibility of the gospel message is built on the ground of the unity of the church, and we are the church. The purpose of our unity is so that the world may believe the gospel, that our disunity would not cause discredit to the gospel message that people would not believe that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. Now, let me just let you in on a little insight as well. Disagreement and disunity are not the same thing. There's all kinds of opinions in this room. There's all kinds of preferences. Over the years, I've had more than one conversation where people said something like this. You know, if I were the pastor, I would, you know, here's, I would do this, different, those kind of things. Listen, there's all kinds of ways we can disagree on how to make disciples, how to view this, how to view that. Listen, just take a second right now and look around the room real quick. Just scan the room real quick. Look around. There's some weird birds in here. Amen? <laughs> and if you're like, hey, I don't think that's true. It's you. I just write that down, all right? It's the only thing you learn today. And guess what? We're going to have differences of opinion. We're going to have this. But the reality is unity is not a call to uniformity where we all agree these are the songs that Jesus would sing. This is the dress code that Jesus would have. These are, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Listen, unity doesn't come from uniformity. Unity comes because we have a common mission to make disciples. We've been called into a common salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got a common motive, which is to glorify Jesus. And one of the primary ways we do that is by living in unity despite our lack of uniformity why so that they may believe that you have sent me and so disunity is a sin that we repent of we don't manage this we repent of that because it damages the testimony of jesus christ but the quest for unity doesn't stop there we also have to cultivate the qualities that lead to unity and remember what i said earlier that unity is the overflow of pursuing these Christ-like qualities. And he lists five of them in verses 2 and 3. So I'm going to read through verses 2 and 3 again. Uh, much slower than my auctioneer heart wants to read through them, all right? With the hopes that you can pick out these five things he lists uh, in the text. So let me read this, all right? 
with all humility and gentleness. It's so painful to read this slow, all right? With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so do you see what he's saying there? He lists five things that would lead to unity, five things we should be pursuing. And unity is the overflow. So right here from the text, uh, the first one is, uh, is humility. We've taught this multiple times. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's self-abasement. Uh, what I believe about myself is that everything Jesus has said about me is 100% true, that I am who he says I am in my identities in him. So that's not humility. Humility is just thinking of myself less often. Now, why is that important in the quest for unity? Because here's the reality. The opposite of humility is pride, and the prideful person cannot help himself. They always think of themselves. Well, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to make me look? Why don't you want to agree with me? Why don't you think my idea is the best idea? And the prideful person will go to war with someone else in the hopes that that person may agree with them. But the humble person naturally defers to anyone else. The casualty of a pride-filled heart is that you will not let anyone speak into your life with a view that counters your own and you cannot agree to disagree. The prideful person always has to be right and they'll go to war to get what they want, which is to be right. Humility is others-centered. Would model Jesus who humbled himself, Scripture says, and became a servant to die on the cross for undeserving sinners, Philippians 2. So the first character quality that I pursue, that the overflow of unity, is humility. The second thing here in the text uh, is gentleness. As you can imagine, I've got lots of friends who are pastors. I'm going to let you in a little secret. Almost every pastor I know hates pastoring during election year. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Politics has the ability to take normal people and turn them into total idiots. And the beauty is they can share their idiotic thoughts on social media unfiltered, praise God, right? I've seen that before and I just want to comment on their anonymously, like fake profile, don't tell them you go to Liberty Heights Church, right? Like whatever you do, like whatever, right? And one of the things that we throw out the window during a political season or an election year uh, is that we uh, throw aside uh, gentleness, Right? That at the end of the day, uh, these people who disagree with me, they're on this side, they're on this side, uh, they, have, they have different viewpoints, and, and they're no longer uh, fellow people creating the image of God. They're the enemies, and I'm going to destroy them with my speech, which is the exact opposite of gentleness. Matter of fact, if you speak that way, uh, and you just say, I can't help myself, then here's what I want you to understand. You're not being discipled by the word of God in Jesus Christ. You're being discipled by your political party and your favorite news source. Because the Bible describes Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew as gentle and lowly. What is gentleness? Gentleness has to do with considering others and forfeiting my rights uh, in the process. That I'm, that I'm so considerate of others that I'm willing to lay aside my rights, my right to be right, my right to be heard, my right to whatever the case is, that I'm willing to lay aside for the sake of unity. Now, let me just uh, say this, all right? If your speech and your attitude isn't characterized by gentleness... You're not spiritually mature. You may be biblically literate. You may be religiously active, as evidenced by the fact that you're a church. But spiritual maturity is marked by a consistent display of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. And one of the things listed in those nine character qualities of the fruit of the Spirit is, guess what? Gentleness. 
And we've entered a season, if we're being honest, where gentleness and meekness are viewed as weakness. Folks, if we have that, then guess what? Then Jesus is no longer an all-sufficient Savior, and let's just all go home. Humility leads to unity. Gentleness leads to unity. The third thing he lists here in verses 2 and 3 uh, is patience. Bearing other shortcomings and faults, bearing their weaknesses, bearing their failures. In the Greek, it's the idea of having a long fuse as opposed to a hair trigger. How patient are we when people disagree with us? How long are we willing to suffer with people who think differently than us? Patience along with gentleness is also a fruit of the Spirit. The Lord patiently pursued us when we were pursuing our sin, according to Romans 5.8. How can we not be patient with other people? Fourth thing he lists there is love. Now, I've taught this before. Let me just remind us because we're coming up on Valentine's Day, and I just want to be as helpful as I can, all right? <laughs> love is not an emotion. There are emotions entangled in it. Listen, if, if love, your definition of love is reduced down to only emotion, then what that is, and it's not love, it's infatuation. Love, biblically defined and illustrated by Jesus, is the willingness to self-sacrifice on behalf of someone else. The Bible says this, that greater love have no man than this, John 15, 13, that a man lay down his life for his friends, right? That doesn't mean I'm going to jump in front of a train. What it means is this, I'm willing to lay aside my rights, my privileges, my opinion, my those things. Why? Because I'm willing to self-sacrifice on your behalf. And so how does that lead to unity? Because I don't always have to have my way. I don't always have to have you see things the way that I see things. The Bible says this in 1 John chapter 4. We're told that our ability to love one another is the actual evidence of as whether or not we're actually converted or whether or not we're fake Christians. You know what that means? Listen, you know what you call a non-loving Christian? A non-Christian, according to the Bible. Listen, let me just remind you this as we head into the selection season. I'm just chasing the right. Let me just remind you this. That love is the secret sauce of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love still works. Love still transforms the world. Jesus is still enough. And so we live that way with that conviction. Guess what? The overflow is going to be unity. And then here's the last one. And this one's interesting because the last one he mentions here in verse 3 is zeal. Now here's what's interesting. Verse 3 it does not say we're to be zealous in creating unity. Look at verse 3 and see what the text says. In verse 3 it says we're eager or zealous in some translations to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What does that mean? That means the unity across all this lack of uniformity. That is a supernatural thing the Spirit produces in the body of Christ. We can't create that humanly. That's artificial. But what he's saying is when we're living a surrendered life to the Holy Spirit, the natural result will be there will be unity in the body of Christ. So here's what that means. That if you and I are involved in creating disunity, what that means is we're not living in such a way that we're in step with what the Spirit produces. Over the years, I've had people who've been contentious in the church. who have been created disunity. 
And oftentimes their campaign, whatever it is they're causing disunity about, oftentimes it's un- some, some kind of spiritual title or agenda. And here's what this text says. If I'm leading or pursuing something that's causing disunity, then I'm out of step with what the Spirit produces because what the Spirit produces in the church is unity among the body of Christ. And so what am I after? What am I zealous for? Not to create unity. That's the spirit's job to maintain it. How do I maintain unity? By fighting against disunity. How do I fight against disunity? By living out these character qualities. And the result or the overflow will be unity. Here's the third thing in this text I want you to see, just in case you're not convinced yet. This is a deep theological truth, so put your hats on, all right? You ready? Here it is. Disunity is dumb. I originally, my notes had irrational, but I graduated from Carlisle and I wasn't sure it was spelled right, so I changed it to dumb. (laughs) Someone here is probably a teacher at Carlisle, like, I'm not coming back, right? These verses remind us, here's what verses 4, 5, and 6 remind us of. That the basis or the foundation of our unity is our positional unity in Jesus Christ, that the The overflow, the practical unity experienced in the body of Christ, the foundation of it is our positional unity in Jesus Christ. That's what verses 4, 5, and 6. And so the case he's making here is, hey, listen, if we're all unifying our position in Christ and he's going to build the case in 4, 5, and 6, then to to have disunity uh, when we all have the same position in Christ, it's irrational. That's what he's describing here. So let me just walk you through this uh, quickly. There's not a lot of interpretation. There's some observation from verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, so uh, the first thing I want you to see is this, is that disunity is self-harm. In verse 4, he says, you're all part of one body, the body of Christ. And so what does that mean? To injure someone else through conflict and disunity uh, is self-harm. It's to cut off your nose to spite your face. That if I'm willing to create havoc and harm others in the body of Christ, and we're in the same body, it's self-harm. This makes sense. Also in verse 4, disunity behaves as if the spirit is schizophrenic. He says, you all possess the same spirit. And so here's what that means. is I'm willing to go against the grain of everybody else and the counsel of the body of Christ and the safety of the multitude of counsel because I want what I want and I'm going to have it and I'm willing to cause a stink and create disunity so that I can get it. Here's what you have to understand. What you're saying is the spirit is leading me contrary to how the spirit is leading everyone else and the same Holy Spirit indwells us. That makes no sense whatsoever. Listen, if you're creating unity in the body of Christ, according to verse 3, you are being led by the spirit, but it's a demonic spirit. Because the Holy Spirit produces unity in the body of Christ. Disunity forgets that we were once hopeless. Verse 4 says that we were called to salvation to one hope. What does that mean? That before Christ called us to himself in salvation, we were hopeless apart from Christ. And when we forget that, uh, listen, we get prideful. When I realize that Christ saved me and I was hopeless, then I'm humble. And humility leads to unity. Disunity, going on in verses 5 and 6, disunity treats family like enemies. Verse 5 and 6, he reminds us, you were all baptized by the same spirit into the same spiritual family in Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder, why do Christians call each other brother and sister? That's why. 
He says, you're in the same spiritual family, brought into the same spirit of God, in the same family, and you have the same Father God. And so when I'm going to war with other believers, basically what I'm saying is, hey, we're in the same family, but I'm treating you as if you were, in fact, an enemy. Here's the last thing we can conclude from this. Disunity makes us look like bratty kids. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you or not. At times, I felt the Lord calling me to the ministry of surrogate spanking. Have I ever shared that with you? <laughs> you ever get somewhere and you see a kid going buck wild, and the parents like, you know, calm down, giving them, you know, negotiating for good behavior, and in that moment, I have to surrender. I say, Lord, I'm available. Right? Like, that parent won't do it. I'll wear that kid out for the glory of God. Lord, if you want me to, I'm here. Here am I, Lord. Send me. That's what I pray, right? Right? Which, by the way, I found that I prayed that a lot more often when I did not have kids. Amen? Right? You know what a bratty kid wants? Whatever they want. If you think, well, I don't think humans are inherently selfish. Here's what I know. You don't have any children. That's what I know about you, right? Your, your baby, as cute as it is, listen, is nothing but a little sinner. They could care less if you're tired. They could care less uh, that you're trying to drive and they're screaming. They could care less of all the labor to get a clean diaper. Because you know what they're going to do because they're little sinners? They're going to have another blowout. Amen? I remember early on when our kids were little, Tasha and I had a little game. I was the worst offender. Uh, you walk by, the kid just stink like hot garbage. You know what I'm talking about, right? They just walk by and you walk out of the room, and then all of a sudden Tasha say, Did you smell that? I said, I had no idea. I had no idea. Didn't smell it. Sorry. <laughs> must, have just done, must have just done it when you walked in the room. You know what a bratty kid wants? They want their selfish little desires to be indulged. And when you and I cause disunity in the body of Christ, we're those bratty kids. Look at verse 6. What does he say in verse 6? There is one God, Father over all. So followers of Christ, we're his children. Father over all. Uh, scripture says, who is over all. You know what that means when it says he's over all? That he's completely sovereign. You know what that means? That because he's completely sovereign, and I'm his child, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and he's my father, then I live submissively to him, and I do what he wants to do, not selfishly what I want to do, and what he wants to do is promote unity in the body of Christ so that they may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We live in a world, in a cultural moment, where it feels like everyone is against everyone. Where people would rather destroy someone who disagrees with them than see them as someone made in the image of God. And that grieves my heart deeply. I feel like we're at a tipping point in culture. But here's the other part that I'm hopeful about. In a cultural moment where there's so much hatred and disunity and lack of love for, for each other, what an opportunity to represent Jesus well by loving people that you don't even agree with sometimes. By deferring to people instead of demanding your rights. By being patient with people instead of yelling and arguing with people. What an opportunity 
to give credibility to the gospel message that Jesus is the Messiah. And people should look at our church and go, not say, wow, you guys agree on everything. You all have the same dress code and same Bible translations. You all vote for the same people and you view everything the same. But people say, look at church. Wow, there's all kinds of people in your church. Some lean left and some lean right. And there's different races. There's different family of origin. There's different socioeconomic levels. There's different native languages spoken. And somehow, despite all that lack of uniformity, there's, you actually love each other. Because it's hard to tell the world that Jesus loves them when we behave like we don't even like each other. And so we're in a moment in our culture where we can live different. And most of the times when we talk about living different as a Christian, let's just be honest, it just ends up being weird. I'm different. I do this and I wear this and I don't make up and you know, blah, 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 stuff. You know what's different is to love people you disagree with. What's different is to defer to people instead of demanding your own rights. And so it feels like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It feels like everybody hates everybody. What a time to be on mission for Jesus Christ. And the people would look at our church and say, what's different about you? We say, oh, it's real simple. We don't agree on everything, but we love each other because Jesus first loved us. We've all got opinions and preferences in this room, but I hope we all come to the place this morning that agree not a single one of those differences is worth someone else's soul. And so may we live in unity so that the world may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? All these truths and promises, the Bible says, find their yes in Jesus. That apart from relationship with Jesus, there's no hope for you to live this way. Your willpower won't work. The Bible says, apart from Jesus, we're slaves to our sinful desires. You will never live this way apart from Jesus. And so, has there been a time and a place or a season in your life where you recognize that compared to Jesus, you are a sinner? And that sin separates you from God. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins, was buried and rose the third day, and you threw yourself on the mercy of Jesus and said, Lord, I am but a sinner. Save me. These people that got up today and said, I'm not ashamed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Can you say that today? That you're in fact a follower of Jesus Christ? You can be if you'll open up your heart and receive him by faith today. And receive him as your Lord and Savior. Would you be saved today? Right in your seat. Would you pray and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, let me just ask you a simple question. If the world had to judge if you were a genuine follower of Christ by the simple way you treated other people, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian?
Have you allowed the world to dictate how you speak and treat other people and how you disagree with people? Or is the model Jesus? In this election year, are you more interested in displaying the glory of Christ through gentleness, love, humility, patience? Or are you just more interested in destroying the people that disagree with you? If that's you and that's what characterizes life, listen, I'm gently but unapologetically calling this morning to repentance. Would you confess that? Would you repent and have a desire to turn from that? And would you believe and put your faith in that the way that Jesus calls us to live is better? And would you pray right now, Lord, with the Spirit's help, help me to live in such a way that when I tell people about Jesus, it's believable. Father, we need your help. Lord, if we're not careful, we'll allow the culture to dictate our, our behavior. And God, we have to come to a place where we say that's not a fitting way to live. We're not walking worthy of the gospel to which we're called when we do that. And so, Lord, help us to be different. That we love our enemies. That we bless those who persecute us. That when someone takes our cloak, we give them our vest as well. And God, when people ask us why, let us humbly and boldly tell them, Jesus. He truly is our living hope. And so, Lord, we ask for his help. We're powerless without it. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.